documentary first, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast, and with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh Lindsay. How are you today? I'm great, Christian. How are you? Good, thank you. Happy to be here. You're very paisley today. I am very paisley. This is my new shirt from Jeans and a Cute Top Shop in Wheaton. I love that store. Wait, do they have involvement with the Girl Who Wore Freedom, or is that a different store? They they did. Jeans and a Cute Top Shop is responsible for Rhoda Reed's story in our film. She uh-huh. introduced Rhoda and I, and Rhoda was the one who buried her husband or who scattered her husband's ashes on Utah Beach. And also with us, as always, couldn't do it without on the awesome Jason Rugg. Hey, Jason. Hey, good. So it good to see you guys. Uh, there's like more light in your basement. Yeah, I think it depends on what shirt I'm wearing. My oh. camera adjusts. And so, <laughs> but also it's a very sunny day. Yeah, that's, I'm sure right that's there. it. Well, and that reminds me, if you're only listening to this podcast, you might want to check us out sometime on YouTube so you can see what we look like and, you know, know what we're talking about when we say you look this way or, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, usually when that happens, people are disappointed. You know, like, oh, I thought he would have looked different. <laughs> <laughs> I had a much better yeah, picture so in my just, head. Just keep listening, everybody. <laughs> well, it's really great to be back with uh, the two of you. It's been a while since it's just been the three of us, so it's kind of fun that we're back together. We've got the band back with just us. So, so Christian. Yeah. You still have a distribution deal? I do. And you know what? We've had a really fun week because we have yet to announce distribution on social media. We've only announced it. We've given sort of the inside scoop to our podcast listeners and to our newsletter subscribers. And this week we had decided to tease out the social media uh, on social media, our distribution announcement. And my team came up with this wonderful idea of taking three of our archival photos and just putting the distributor's logo on them. Uh, And then we've made a... Uh, and front page, 1940s front page of a newspaper, um, you know, headline thing that is we're going to use to announce it uh, on Thursday, I think tomorrow. So, um, you know, that's been fun. But everybody is texting me and emailing me and talking to me on, uh, you know, social messages like, what's going on? What surprise is this? And usually it's everybody that already knows it. So I'm afraid it's going to be really anticlimactic <laughs> when it actually happens. But I mean, Jason, you know this. Distribution for any film at all is a huge deal, uh, even though we're not coming oh, out yeah. and saying, we're on the History Channel. Uh, it's still the fact that this tiny little first-time film maker has a film that's got distribution this quickly is a big deal. So. Yeah, it's it's a step on the path, right? That's kind of how a lot of people won't get the how right. big of a step it's that true. is. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, so yes, that was the fun thing that has been happening on social media this week. I want to give a lot of credit to my social media staff. Jonathan Liu is actually, um, he is just one of our uh, secret uh, weapons, I feel like, on our pod, uh, I mean, on our social media team. Jonathan was a listener to the Holy Post. He volunteered, um, and he has been the creator of a lot of the animatics that you've seen. Um, Analogy Overload was uh, one of them, and the Dunn 
Uh, Dunn's number uh, animatic was another. He's working on right one right now of all of us and the Michelle Phoenix story. So that one's going to be coming out soon. And he came up with this idea to tease uh, things out this way. So I give a lot of credit to, to Jonathan and then Savannah Woods, Bethany Valero and Charles Moore are working on uh, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and They've been really killing it. So we appreciate you guys. Definitely, if you're listening to this, if you could interact with our social media posts, that would really be huge. Um, We really love to see audience engagement, um, just different questions and different comments. So make sure you uh, take some time to give a comment once in a while. That would be awesome. So what else is going on in the world of film festivals? Oh, Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. We had a big weekend last weekend. Uh, You guys are going to love this. So if you'll remember, we won the award for the uh, World War II Film Festival in Normandy. And we were also in the Thin Line Film Festival. Both of those film festivals were free this past weekend and uh, for about three days over the weekend. And I am so excited to give you this report. We showed the French version of the film and the English version of the film. And we had 375 views from of the French version. We had over 500 views of the English version. And so, you know, a total of a little more than 800 views total from 26 countries over every continent in the world wow. other than Antarctica. Oh, come on, Antarctica. I know. I don't know what's wrong with those penguins, but (laughs) (laughs) they just obviously don't like World War II movies. But yeah, I was just incredibly excited to see that. We had lots of wonderful comments on social media and in our email inboxes and stuff like that. So that was really heartwarming. And, you know, it reminded me, I've kept waiting for some sort of negative press, negative reviews or negative stuff from people. And we haven't received any of that yet, which is, I think, completely unusual. And I sort of am waiting for the other foot to fall. But it it really is very affirming to me that we did a wonderful job telling the story too. So it's been well, very encouraging. You, you did make a great film. I, I think it's kind of hard to critique, critique this story in particular because of the story and what it's about. I mean, I suppose you can make a bad version of that. Um, but obviously you made a great film. And so I would imagine you'd have to get it into broader audiences to start. You got to be a big target to have people start critiquing it for this, you know, for critiquing sake, you know, where people are just going to nitpick it because it's on the big stage where it's because like you even said in in film festivals, there's different levels. And I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you're kind of like a, if there's three tiers, you're in the middle tier. And if you were to, go up one more level, I think it would still receive high praise, but it would just naturally have people attack it because that's what people do when it's, when it's on a bigger stage. Absolutely. There's no question about that. We are in the middle tier of film festivals and uh, we aren't exposed to that much criticism because there's not enough news outlets covering this. Um, And, but we have had some critical reviews. I mean, in terms of, uh, actual critics watching the film and writing reviews. Um, so, but you're right. We, we aren't at the top level where, you know, people are 
seriously critiquing us, you know, in the broader entertainment industry media. And we might get there once it is released. Um, you know, time will tell. But I do think there, I mean, you're a film critic or a film reviewer of sorts. And, it, and if it was, if the sound was bad, if the story was bad, if the cinematography right. wasn't very good, I mean, there are ways that you could review it and say, you know, it, it, it fell short in these different areas. Uh, if I were to review our film, um, I do think that one of the things that was a challenge for us and could be considered a weakness is that really, this documentary is a tale of two films. You know, you have you have the first half, which is all really focused on the French experience, and you have the second half, which is very much focused on the American veteran experience. And it's a lot to to cram into to one film. Um, and then we didn't cover anything about the occupation. So, um, you know, people could could break it down that way, but. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm thankful right now. It's been blessing people and uh, people have been sharing it with other people. That's just a really uh, a wonderful thing. One of uh, Flo Plana, who is in our film, has been on our podcast before. He said that he did share it on his social media channels. And the French people are very skeptical of any World War II documentary or film because they've seen it all before. You know, they're just very jaded. And a lot of times when Americans tell that story, they get it wrong. And so they don't really expect a lot from World War II documentaries or to be surprised about them. But he said he was so excited because people that were skeptical and and um, sort of critical at the beginning, once they saw it, were so much more positive about it and shared it with many others and said it was, you know, really great to watch. So uh, whenever a French person uh, ends up being very skeptical and doesn't think it's going to be great and then turns around and says it's great, that I've succeeded <laughs> for sure. Well, one of the things, you know, um, <laughs> when you're critiquing films, I would say that the general population doesn't notice things like, you know, if they didn't like it, they wouldn't know why they liked it necessarily. They would usually attribute it to they didn't like that actor or they didn't like the story. We're here. Well, and this is naturally a story people fall in love with very quickly and the people in there. So that that's a, a plus. Um, but there are things like lighting or cinematography, again, people may not be able to put their finger on it, but it could be bad and then ruin the film. And in this film, you know, fortunately you had great people working on the film. So you were able to avoid all those pitfalls. Like for example, lighting, no one really pays attention to lighting unless it's bad. True. And True. so in this case, you know, I think that was shot. It looks good. It's a mixture of, of new and old footage. And so it, it gets a pass for general audiences and it's probably very good, you know, it just, but most people wouldn't notice that. So it's, 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 you were able to go above the threshold when it came to all of these areas of lighting and editing and, and writing to where it's, uh, you know, above average or really good. And so people would not be, they wouldn't even pay attention to those things because they're not distracting. They're, they're, they're good. And then again, I, I, I think you just, honed in on a great story, but then also knew how to tell it. And I think that's why people enjoy it so much. 
Yeah, story really is is something. I mean, if, if people who are listening to this, you do need to make sure that your story is engaging and compelling and and flows well. When uh, we were interviewed this past weekend at the Thin Line Film Festival, that film festival had two specific screenings. And um, afterward, there was a live Q&A. And so the moderator for the second day, she came on and said, uh, you know, and asked the audience, have you ever seen such a heartwarming, uh, moving documentary? And I thought that was very interesting because, I mean, for her, what was so surprising was that it wasn't just an intellectual, heady, factual thing of this is what's happening. It really was an emotionally engaging film. And I think if you're a documentary film producer thinking about this, that is something that you really do want to hone in on. Uh, I think it's easy to make a documentary that's just full of facts, uh, but really to grab the heart and the emotions is if you're trying to affect change, let's say you're doing a documentary that's really focused on um, you know, social reform or something like that, to grab people's hearts and get them invested is critically important, I think, to the success of your film. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm also in the world of sales. And one of the things you learn is you know, people make decisions based on emotion and then they back it up with logic. And so uh, a lot of times when people, when films being made and they're telling a true story, they tell the heart, a good one anyway, will tell the heart of the story. And then often at the end, they give like little uh, factual blurbs about the characters, like what happened to them next or whatever. And then that just drives it home. So it's that whole, like they got you emotionally. And at the end, they power punch you with like, you know, and then they saved 10,000 lives or, you know, whatever. At the end, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, and so when that that fact hits you at the end, it's even more powerful because you hooked them emotionally. Yeah, absolutely. And also one thing that I learned with this film, and it's what I'm thinking about in regards to my second film, you want to know who your audience is. I mean, Hunter talked to me about this from the business point of view. You know, who's going to be buying your film? You know, I talked with a filmmaker this week who is contemplating doing a documentary. And he had all of the ideas that he had, you know, that he wanted to include in this film. And he was being really driven by the story that he wanted to tell and what he was passionate about. And I, I started listening with, uh, as if I was Hunter. And what I realized was he had not given any thought to the end part of it in terms of who are the buyers for this? And, you know, who is going to pay money to see this? And in most instances, of course, it is the distributor that you're looking for. But you do need to know who the people are that are going to be listening. And you need to figure out how to grab them right away. And so as Hunter and I were talking about the Brave Dutch, and I was thinking about, you know, this was going to be a story focused on the Dutch resistance, we both decided that we really needed to start with the American airman and what his experience was bailing out of this bomber. Um, because our audiences are primarily going to be Americans that don't know the story. And so right away, they're going to come to this World War II story with emotions already inside of them when they think about a World War II veteran, right? There's all this other stuff they come to the movie theater with. And you want to tap into that right away. Um, and so when you're crafting your story, you want to think about something that the viewer can connect to right away. Uh, so that they are hooked into your story. It's very important, I think. 
when you think about, I mean, sorry, but the master storyteller in my mind is is Jesus Christ. When you think about uh, how he uh, sort of brought people into his, you know, sort of mission, what did he do? He went to each one of them and he talked to them about what was most important to them? You know, he started with the fishermen. If, if you haven't watched The Chosen, even if you're not a Christian, I would highly recommend The Chosen simply because it's an incredibly well done film. And it's really more about the people that followed Jesus. And in that instance, you know, his, you know, he would tell stories of, that dealt with, you know, fishing. He would with taxes with growing and planting, with, um, you know, vineyards and wine and sheep. And all of those stories all started with what his listeners dealt with on an everyday basis and things that were important to them. That's how he grabbed his audience's attention. And I think that's a perfect model for any filmmaker. Speaking of The Chosen, uh, that's a series, isn't it? It is a series. They've done season one. They're about to launch season two on Sunday for Easter, actually. Oh, so it's filmed. Oh, yeah. Jason, have you seen The Chosen? I haven't yet. It's one of those things that I keep meaning to get to, and you know, I haven't. I, I just, I was visiting my parents, <clears throat> my parents, and there was a TV playing in the background there. I saw a trailer for, I think it was called The Resurrection, and it's a new film about Jesus or whatever, and, it, you know, it's like this, this, you know, the story that's never been told before. I'm like, are you kidding? It's been told hundreds of times. And, and uh, uh, I think it's unique. I mean, I haven't checked out The Chosen, uh, but I keep hearing good things. And for a story so well known like that and has been filmed so many times, to have people be excited about it again, is it's at least compelling. I'll have to check it out, see why it's so good. Well, I think it's a compelling project all the way around from how they have shot it to how they have marketed, marketed it. Um, and to the point of view that they told the story from. Um, it's a it's an absolutely new way to look at a very old, often told story. Um, and the production value is just insane. And the acting is amazing. So yeah, I've I'm really a fan of the series. And people that aren't Christians have given it that acclaim, and people that I know are Christians, but are kind of very jaded toward Christian media content, which honestly I am as well, uh, have also given it a lot of thumbs up. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. I, uh, <laughs> I saw Dave, if you know who David French is, he, he comes up a lot on the Holy Post podcast. Uh, he was recommending The Chosen. And so I thought, oh, I should check it out until I saw that he was a big fan of the DC Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. And then I thought, well, I don't know if I can <laughs> not trust this guy. going to take his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> He's not really a film reviewer anyway. He, he, he does other stuff. but That's true. Art is subjective, Josh. You know that. Oh, yes, I know. But – Oh. But the, yes? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there are people, I assume in everyone's life, but I know in my life, that if someone says, this is good, you should check it out, I trust their opinion because one – we have similar tastes, but two, I think they have a critical eye and I, 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 I trust their opinion of, of things, you know, just like you have a friend who'd say, try out this restaurant, you know, oh, it's probably good. Same thing with movies. Cause although art is subjective, sometimes people just don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> this is true. Do you trust, do you trust Jason's? Reviews? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yes. 
<laughs> uh, well, I do have one thing to report uh, that's not so great. We uh, we did not win the Thin Line Best Documentary Award. I just have to say that. You know, there are film festivals where we don't win anything. I don't know what's wrong with those people, but... <laughs> say it ain't so. It's true. It's so. But, however, I do have a very good feeling about this next film festival coming up, and uh, I hope I'm right, but we'll see. It is the Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, and it is taking place at the end of August, at the end of August, at the end of April in Dubuque, Iowa. And I'm super excited about this one because it's our—it's probably our last in-person film festival. It's only three hours away, so a lot of people nearby can come and see it. And they seem to be really excited about us being there. And instead of giving us the normal two screenings, they've given us three and there may be four. And they are allowing us to set up a World War II reenactment camp there. So we've been busy putting those details together. There will be a half track and a couple of Willie's Jeeps and um, there will be, you know, big tents and little tents and all sorts of GIs wandering around to give, you know, World War II history. Uh, weapons will be there so people can see what those actually look like. And then it is possible that we can have some World War II veterans from our film uh, with us as well. So uh, I'm super, super excited about all that. You mentioned this might be the last in-person Film festival. When do you think the film festival run is going to be over for the film? Well, we stopped applying to film festivals a while back. We only have about 25 more film festival responses to hear from. And, you know, we're at a 21% acceptance rate right now. So we could get anywhere between, you know, zero to five acceptances, realistically speaking. Um, and Really, those would probably go through the end of June or July. And so I we are starting to wrap up. We are getting to the end of our festival runway and we are, you know, we are going to release uh, around D-Day this year. So uh, once that happens, really, the film festival stuff is wrapping up. So it seems like film festival run will end as distribution is ramping up. From my perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems, you know, once it's in distribution's hands and, you know, you've delivered all the deliverables they've asked for, it doesn't seem like there's much more for you to do except start a second film, which sounds like you've already started. So <laughs> is that is that true? Yeah, well, I think it's different for every filmmaker. Uh, I really do. There are some filmmakers that once they turn it over to the distributors, they basically wash their hands and move on to another thing. And they they don't really... Uh, they don't help in any way at all. And sometimes distributors prefer that. Um, in our case, it's going to be a little different. And I think filmmakers need to understand you do have this option. Um, in our situation, uh, the distributor asked us if we wanted to be involved with the marketing of the film. And we said, absolutely. I mean, we've been carrying this baby now for three years and we are so invested with our audience and with the story and the mission. We know that we can reach our audiences um, better than anybody else. And they will be the buyers for our film. And I don't want to just turn it over to somebody and let them, you know, kind of control it or run it. Um, we want to be involved in that. So we will be working closely with the distributor to market this film. And then, uh, you know, going forward, 
we still have to have this conversation with the distributor. You know, it's always a, a back and forth about, oh, Wrigley. <laughs> it's, it's always a back and forth um, with us checking on the sales for this film. Ultimately, that distributor has hundreds of films to be responsible for. Right now, I only have this one and I want to make sure that they are you know, utilizing every sales opportunity possible. So I've already brought them one sales opportunity. And so, you know, my guess is that will continue where I will be, hey, I heard about this. Have you submitted to this? Here's another idea. Have we covered this? Because ultimately, think about this. Um, I'm going to receive a percentage of every sale that it's made. So I could sit back on my laurels and just wait for whatever they send me, or I could be part of making my own money, right? Uh, so it, that is really up, I think, to the filmmaker and how they negotiate the relationship with the distributor. And the other thing that with this project, for me, it's a passion project. And I know that it changes lives. And I know that I have a lot to offer, whether it's to filmmakers or veterans or even kids. And I know this is why I retain theatrical rights. I know this distributor is not going to be interested or able to get our film in theaters across the United States, but I am able to book myself in theaters and schools and veterans homes and retirement communities, take the film and go and uh, spend time talking. And I will now be paid to do those things, and that will be part of my income, making income with this film. Uh, I talked to another person yesterday who uh, said their brother-in-law was a documentary filmmaker as well. And I said, well, has, has he made a living being able to do this? And he said, well, I think that he makes a living in events where he's written a book and he goes to this event, he sells his book, he shows his film, and that's how he makes money to be able to create more films. And so, you know, that's a very viable thing if people are interested in doing that kind of thing. But that's not the way it is for everybody, but that is an option. First, let me say, uh, today I chose to record from home, hoping uh, I'd have better internet, better computer. It happens to be spring break week for my family. So I've had someone coming and going and dogs barking. So I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. It just, actually, your video is better and I love how you sound. So we're all good. Okay, great. And Wrigley will show up every now and then, apparently. So sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, Wrigley, Wrigley sounded, sounded awesome. great. <laughs> we can hear him loud and clear. <laughs> uh, the second thing is, I think it's interesting what, what you're talking about being involved in marketing the film. There's a an author, Robert Kiyosaki. He's kind of known in the world of entrepreneurs and business and, and money and so forth. And he's written a few good books, um, but he, he is a New York times bestselling author and he, he's, and he is very much in the world of sales and, and he, that sort of thing. And, and anyway, a young and upcoming author came up to him and asked, you know, how do I become a, a New York times bestselling author? And one of the tips Robert Kiyosaki gave was like, well, you, know, you should you know take some classes on sales and marketing and this, author was, you know, offended, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, you know, I don't do sales. And the point was like, well, you're going to have a hard time selling books. Cause you know, <laughs> just cause you have a publisher doesn't mean your books are going to be sold. And so the fact that you can connect the dots and say like, well, Hey, every time this movie gets sold or distributed, I get a cut and, and you can be involved in, in making that move forward. And and it's good for everybody, you know, the distributor, you, the people involved in the films, your next film, the people involved in the next films, you know, that kind of thing. And so, so actually having 
involvement at some level, sales ability, and just, and there's often a negative connotation with that, but just in, in being enthusiastic about your film and continuing to get other people involved with your film, that's good sales, you know, and, and, uh, and, and which would lead to more things rather than, you know, well, I'm done with this film and wash my hands of it. Good luck distributor. And maybe I'll move on to the next thing. So I, I think that's an important note to take from this. I would absolutely agree with you. You know, and I, it's again, I say I feel like a broken record, but I do think that every filmmaker needs to understand when they make a film, they're opening a small business and they need to view it as opening a small business. You need capital to begin. It you're going to it's going to take a long time for your books to be in the black. Uh, it is a long-term investment and it's something that is going to be with you for a long time. And if you steward it and shepherd it well, it will bring a return. It will be something you'll be able to pass on to your children. It's just like any other book or anything else. And a large part of any business, you know, you are making a product is marketing and selling that product. And that never really ends uh, unless you just give up on it. You're tired of it and you want to move on to something else. And many people do that. Um but turning it over to the distributor to have them be primarily responsible for making the big sales does allow me time to go and work on another project for sure. And I am looking forward. I've already gotten creatively interested this week or in the last couple of weeks with this Brave Dutch. I feel my mind shifting as I, uh, for a while, I was like just doing routine things to get this project going. But now I'm like, ooh, I want to read that thing and I want to know more about this. And I, I just felt that creative energy coming back. So that was, that was really exciting. Can, isn't there a company like Dutch boy paint or something? Yes. Yes. Might be it. Maybe I should talk to them. I was going to say, you might have a a corporate sponsor here in the making. Yeah. I should start. Um, Yeah. Um, I I was going to ask when you were talking about, you know, um, keeping up to date on things. Uh, Have either of you heard of synopsis? the newsletter no no no, no, no. what is that so they send out a free newsletter every day at 4 30 in the morning uh and it's all industry news um pretty much it's a lot of tv but there's also movies and and studios in there as well but you know it'll be uh so and so just acquired such and such from so and so it'll just be a little blurb but it's just all these little things that are really helpful and I, i read it pretty much every day um, my writing partner, Sean, is much better about reading it every day. And so sometimes I'll just wait for him to read it and then he'll text me the interesting things. And I'm like, oh, yes, I've read synopsis now. Um, but it's a really interesting site. You know, a lot of people know about Deadline, you know, like Deadline does these blurbs throughout the day. But synopsis is really good for keeping up on, you know, OK, so uh, Crackle just launched uh a new production company and it's headed up by this guy who came from over here and, and they'll connect the dots for you and it's kind of a good way to see how the industry is trending. It's really helpful for, you know, just keeping track of, okay, so if they're launching a production studio, they're probably doing pretty well. You know, they're not worried about, you know, launching new things. They like launching new things. That's, you know, they might be an interesting partner. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do just based off looking at synopsis. It's just a lot of assumptions you can make and a lot of just learning names, a lot of things like that. It's hard to, you know, like history channel is history channel, but, I know Brianna over at history channel mainly because everything about history channel has something to do with her. 
it always comes up that she's always has something to do with History Channel. And so I, I remember that name. I don't know why, but it's connected to History Channel in my brain. And so it's just kind of an interesting way to to get to know um, the industry and what's happening. Yeah, and um, I, so, yeah, that, that's another part I appreciate you sharing it. that. I mean, we haven't ever actually touched on this, but this is huge. Reading the industry trades is critical uh, because you – and there's many of them out there. I mean, it's not just synopsis or deadline. You also have variety. You also have um, real uh, real screen, real 360. You have Movie Maker Magazine. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. IDA has their own magazine. And I get a lot of these updates as well, and they are – talking about everything that you can possibly imagine, the industry players, how the industry is shifting, what's going on with the awards, what's the latest in the film festival news. And you do have to have an overview of that industry landscape in order to know how to move and play in the market. So for example, you know, this past couple of weeks, Chris uh, uh, White talked about how Amazon had made this uh, big move inside its company not to accept any more uh, real or no, nonfiction content from independent filmmakers. Well, this is trickling down to even me. I thought it was just filmmakers like Alex um, Meyer who can, you know, uploaded his film. But no, when I talked to my distributor yesterday, which I want to move into the distribution conversation here shortly, when I talked to him yesterday, he said, you know, that news really rocked them and other distributors like them because it was not just independent producers. It was the distributors as well weren't going to be able to put anything up on Amazon. And he said there were whole distribution companies that he knew about that basically their entire library was just dissolved and they had to fold because they didn't have any other outlet for all of their projects. He said they only lost two of their nonfiction films and all the rest are still there. And he's kind of hopeful that we will be able to be on Amazon. Uh, but but yeah, knowing what's happening in the industry can keep you from being surprised and also give you a leg up in any conversations that you have. Uh, one thing I'm thinking about in particular is pitching. So I worked with a pitch producer, Sandy Gordon. She's been on the podcast before. She was so great at diving into every single network and cable channels um, you know, what they were looking for, and it changes every season. And you want to know what those people are looking for, and because then you can craft content that they would be interested in buying. But you learn that from reading the trades or going to industry events like, you know, Real Screen or, you know, MIP or whatever. So, yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say, you wanted to talk more about distribution. I was curious what you... Yeah, I was so excited. I had a wonderful conversation with my distributor this week. And I do want to move into this distribution conversation because we started it back on, I think it was May 10th. Uh, I think it was episode 105, we were talking about the first half, I was going through the list of the deliverables that we need to give, just so people have a heads up of what they need to prepare when they're doing their film. And I had gotten an email this week from them, um, we were talking about the managed rights, and I had you know, uploaded all of my managed rights for the E&O uh, part of our contract. And in there, I, you know, they reviewed all of those rights and then got back to me about what needed to be cleared up. 
And so that sort of initiated a conversation about how we were going to handle that and how uh, and, and sort of all the other things that were outstanding that we need to still give to our distributor. And in that managed rights conversation, I got fantastic news uh, that I'd love to share. One of the biggest things that I was concerned about, we have several pieces in our film and we try to keep it really low, but they're critical pieces. One is the Michel de Valivier footage where he got shot in the back that's owned by INAFR. And then we have the South of the Border song. The rights are owned by um, Reservoir Media and Sony Music Entertainment. And then we have uh, a couple of photos that are owned by AP, one photo that's owned by Getty Images, and another photo that's um, owned by the International, two that are by the International War Imperial War Museum and the other by Topham Photo. So it's really just a handful of things. And as he reviewed all of the rights that I had already paid for, I had told him that I thought we were going to have about ten dollars to $15,000 in fees we were going to need to pay to INA in order to keep that Michelle de Valivier footage because I had only paid for 10-year film festival rights. Well, he looked at the contract and I don't know what happened, but apparently we paid for 10 years of worldwide rights in every media format. Now, I honestly think that was some sort of clerical error because we didn't pay the amount of money for those rights. Um, They had even told me how much it was going to cost as I bumped up in usage. So uh, that was an incredible gift from God for sure. So that has been satisfied for 10 years. And They also told me they would work on negotiating with the music rights people. That, for me, was always the biggest challenge. And then um, I just basically need to take care of getting those photos secured. So that was a a huge encouragement this week. Um, And then uh, they told me also that we will be able to sell the DVDs on our website And that was incredibly exciting. Uh, One of the things that was interesting in this conversation was he wasn't sure they were going to even make DVDs uh, because of how much the industry has changed and how it's not really economical uh, for them to do that anymore. But I mentioned our audience is still using DVDs. They are an older audience and also they are in Europe and Europe is still using DVDs in, in at least in the areas where we were. And plus, whenever I go to uh, events, people want to buy a DVD and people have asked to buy that in our shop. So uh, based on that conversation, he's like, all right, well, we'll make DVDs and we can make it so that when people buy them, they can also stream them. And that was another super encouraging thing for me, because I think that will be useful when I do sort of take the show on the road. That's a good point about knowing your audience, because you're right, I I can't remember the last time I rented a DVD or bought a DVD. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't even have a DVD player. I mean, I think I do. I have a DVD player that I can plug into my computer or Xboxes still play DVDs, right, right Jason? Yeah. Yeah, we, we so, right. Yeah. If they have a disk drive, they sell cheaper really? ones oh, now that, that don't even right? come with a disk drive. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, uh, but, but you're right. An older generation who would be more interested in your film would more likely have, I mean, like I said, I was just visiting my parents who were moving some things around. And, and it was funny because they still have a DVD player. And then below the TV cabinet, I open it up and there's a gajillion CDs and VHS tapes in there. I'm like, oh, great. In case we get our VHS <laughs> awesome. player working again, we can watch these tapes. 
All right. Well, I want to dive into this list real quick. Um, I had left off with the closed captioning situation. And where we did um, get to with that was that we made the um, SRT file and the distributor said, we will send it to our post house and we will try to figure out how uh, they can make a .scc file. So that's where we were um, last. So I'm going to head on down the list. I'll try to do this kind of quickly. Uh, another thing on here is final heads and tail credits. Uh, they're asking for one typewritten copy and one electronic copy in Microsoft Word of the main and in screen credits as they appear in the final picture of the film. That's not too challenging. And just for clarity's sake, this is the deliverables you Thank had to you, give Jason. for the distribution Yes, this deal, is right? the deliverables. Mm -hmm. Okay, just make it So sure. the next one is ENO. Now, ENO is shorthand speak for um, errors and omission, and usually errors and um, errors and omission insurance. I'm still not saying that right. Errors and omissions. There we go. Uh, errors and omission insurance needs to be purchased for every film. And basically, that is insurance that allows you not to be completely destroyed should somebody sue you for what you are using in your film, saying that you don't have the right to use that. Uh, oftentimes, a production company will have to pay for their own errors and omissions insurance. Um, and, but our distributor included that, uh, for us, but we have to then provide everything that they need to give it to the insurer to make sure that, uh, we have a very low, uh, you know, risk of, of people suing us. And so the things that you have to turn in, this is really the biggest area of distribution deliverables that needs to be satisfied, the stuff for ENO, because you have to um, include all the bonus materials and images that are in your film. Uh, you have to show that you have the right to use those. And in a documentary film, that can be extremely large. Um, we have tons of archival footage. We have photos of, you know, cast members. We have... Uh, the, like I said, the film from INAFR, the sound from there, we have tons of music, uh, yeah, the music that's in there, just, uh, the, the composer stuff. So you have to demonstrate that you have the right to use all of those things. And we have created a master rights Bible. We've done it in Google sheets and we laid out by timestamp every image in the film that we did not shoot ourselves. And so we have the timestamp, we have the screenshot of whatever it is, then we have um, sort of the name of it, and we have where we got the right to, to use that in our film. And I was really uh, anxious about this part of it because I'm like, I don't even know how to deliver this to the distributor because uh, you're supposed to put everything in a PDF. And um, this week, they're like, just send us the link for what you're doing, and we'll take care of that. That was a huge relief off my mind. Um, so so that that's a very, very big thing, the bonus materials and images. Um, we have to demonstrate that we have a, a copyright. And so I've talked to before when um, our lawyer was on here, Trevor Schmidt, um, about how to get that copyright uh, to you. And again, you have to fill out paperwork and apply for a copyright. Then you have to send in a physical copy of your product. Uh, 
and then, you know, request a copyright. So we were supposed to receive our copyright paperwork by now. It still has not arrived. I am a bit concerned about that, uh, but I was able to show, um, I do have a receipt that I've paid for that and filled out that application. So that's there. Um, and then these are logical. Most filmmakers know about these. We have to include interviewee deal memo scans, crew deal memo scans, location agreement scans. And so what that means is every time you shoot, everybody knows this who's a filmmaker, you have to get the people in the film to sign off that we have the rights to use their images. Uh, the same thing for locations. And then you have to have crew deal memos for everybody that worked on your film, particularly for above the line people. And so the distributors usually want all of that, but in one PDF. So if you want to be really buttoned up and you want to have it easy on the other end, at the end of your production, make sure that you have all those scans in one PDF. So that's kind of a, a bear that we're working through right now. Um, we need to demonstrate that we have the music rights. So we have to upload and give them all of those uh, agreements. We need to show that we've done a title search and give them a title report. Uh, we need to give a treatment registration um, from the Library of Congress and a WGA treatment registration. So that means we have to register our script with the Library of Congress and with the WGA. So those are all the things that are included in the errors and omissions insurance. The other thing to mention is um, we did have a breakup of our production company. So in the beginning, I started with a partner that kind of dissolved and uh, we had to have a legal agreement drafted between us. That also needed to be uploaded to uh, to the distributor because they need to know that we are free and clear of, um, you know, we have the right to give them the right to license the rights to the film. So that's another thing that we had to upload. Um, so another thing on here is the billing block. Uh, we need to give final billing blocks for posters and video packaging, paid advertisement, et cetera. In uh, here is the chain of title. I already mentioned that. Uh, and one of the other things is a QC report. Now, I still need to ask them about this, um, but they did say they were shipping it off to a QC. QC stands for quality control. And so it initially said, you know, we had to get the quality control from a recognized lab. Uh, but it looks like they're going to do that for us and will come back to us with any problems that they see. So they did find a spelling error before it went to QC. They found a spelling error in our subtitles, which Bill Evil and I were like, what? We have watched this a million times. I have sat through this even the last year. How did I not see this? Um, yeah, so that was embarrassing. But, um, but anyway, we caught it. It was easy to fix. Okay, so one more section here. Actually, we have uh, one, two three little sections. Um, I'm going to go over these really quickly. This next section is publicity materials. And so there's a long list of publicity materials that we have to provide. Uh, and they tell you what these, what those are supposed to be like photographic materials. And they have to be, you know, these specs, um, you know, they have to have photo credits. Uh, we have to give, you know, any original photography and we have to give uh, credit to who they are. Um, we have to give, you know, any behind the scenes photos, photo stills of the picture, 
Um, and then we have to give press kit material, synopsis, biographies of cast and crew, complete cast and crew list, production notes, running time and origin. Um, we need to give an EPK. So that's um, clips, promos, trailers, bonus material. Um, and yeah, so all of those that they can use in pa packaging things. We need to turn in the key art. That's for everything. We've had to turn every single piece of art that we create, even like, you know, earlier on, I talked about these distribution things we've created. We have to give those to them um, as, as well as, you know, all of our stuff for posters and postcards and all of that. They have to have not only the images themselves, but the um, project files. Then uh, title art, which is a copy of the title treatment in a digital format. All of our trailer elements. Um, and then audio elements. So, um, you know, and I think we've talked about that before, a high definition trailer master. And we've done that with, um, we have a couple of different trailers. And I think that almost brings us to the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. Our laurels, we had to upload that goes in the key art. Um, and then our script, we had to turn that in as well. You so know, you, you yeah. see um, a filmmaker, someone new, and they they wrote it, they directed it, they scored the music, maybe they even acted in it. I think I understand why they do that now. It's just <laughs> yeah. easier. Oh, it's so much easier. That is really true. And when I look now at the credits for big movies, I'm just blown away at the complexity of everything that went into that and how much money it cost. And now I understand like budgets for films to me now um, do not seem exorbitant at all when you know everything that is involved from first to last for each film. It's a lot. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand when you go to make a film what all is involved in the business part of it. For sure, the business part of it, I've said this before, has been far harder for me than any of the creative part. Um, so, so yeah, there you go. That completes our distribution deliverable discussion. Now people can understand why I say uh, this has been an ongoing process for a really long time. This is why. <laughs> Uh, Christian, I, I had a question. Have we talked about uh, the Script Notes podcast uh, before? You have mentioned that to me, but I still have yet to listen to it. Can you remind our listeners what that is? So it's a podcast that's been going on for like 400 something episodes. They're, they've been going on a really long time. Um, and it's two screenwriters, um, John August and Craig Mazin. John August wrote uh, Big Fish, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, a bunch of other uh, movies. And then uh, Craig Mazin wrote, uh, most notably recently, the, the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO, which um, they just did an episode, which I think would probably be really interesting to you, Christian. I think it was a week or so ago. They talk about how um, their old assistant, Stuart, is now writing for animated TV, and he received a check for um, royalties from overseas for animation work that he'd drawn that he'd um written on and he's like okay but that isn't wga work and this check came from the wga so how did that happen and they go through this whole process about how in europe which is a big market right. for you right uh 
they the sale of blank DVDs, blank USB drives, and just I think even blank VHS tape still uh, gets taxed against the media that will eventually be put on. Them. Wait, I don't even understand that. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? So they tax it as a blank DVD and go, hey, at some point, someone's going to put, say, the girl who wore freedom on this. And 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 so they they tax it when you buy the blank one and then they send a check to the WGA and then they have to take that check and send it to wow. you because you are one of the writers. And so it's <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll send you the episode, but I'm guessing it'll be really interesting to you. And I would be fascinated to hear if anything comes from that, particularly because now you're registered yeah. with the WGA and you're going to be distributed and you're going to be selling DVDs. I, I'm curious how that's going to happen. Um, if if anything will come from well, that, that or is very interesting. I'm that. glad you brought that up because I was actually talking to our French uh, producers this past week because I have I've already been asked by the museums over in Normandy for copies of our DVDs to shell, sell in their shops. So there's no question that we will want to be making and selling DVDs in Europe, um, and we'll need to make them in the PAL format and the DVD format. And I really do not understand all of the ins and outs of that economically, but that that will be interesting. You're right, Jason. I'll have to listen to that episode. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah. So listen, I wanted to get an update with you guys of what's going on in your perspective or in your personal project life. So, uh, Jason, why don't you start? Um, yeah. So um, Sean and I just uh, actually finished up a first draft of a What We Do in the Shadows spec um, episode, which if you haven't seen the show, What We Do in the Shadows, it's hilarious. Um, and it's about four vampires living in Staten Island. And it's just so dumb and hilarious. Josh is nodding his head. He's actually the huh. one who convinced me to watch the show. So, <laughs> um, but the big breakthrough there is Sean and I, you know, Sean's been living in um, California since the start of the pandemic and I'm still here in Chicago. And so one of the big barriers we've been trying to overcome is how do you write when you're that far apart? And so one of the things we would do is we would write a script. We would each write scenes in script format, then send them to each other we would make changes on those and then we would eventually put them all in one document. That's kind of how we had to do it. And we finally had this breakthrough of using something called fountain fountain syntax, which is actually started by John August. One of the guys from script notes, you can write a script in like Google docs, just plain text. And then you can paste it into a script software as a fountain paste. And it will automatically format it as a script. And so it's been a big breakthrough. We pounded through the script in less than a week because it was so much faster. We could just be seeing what the other one was writing and we could just, you know, be on be on the phone at the same time, cracking jokes, you know, saying, hey, you should change that or that doesn't tie into this now. And, you know, that that creates a logic problem. Actually, right before this, we did an hour long session of just going through and fixing things that we'd noticed over the last week. And so it's really cool. Um, if you haven't looked into Fountain Syntax, you can go to fountain.io. If you're interested in writing it scripts in that format, it's really, really uh, different. Uh, It's pretty simple. Once you get into it, you totally forget that you're not writing in script format, Um, but it automatically formats it and just saves you a ton of time down the road. So that's kind of where we are. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I was going to say in our 
you know, one of the tools that we have used, I don't know how we would do it without it, is the Google, you know, Google Suite. And the everything is done in Google Drive. And all of our collaborative script writing has been in Google Docs. And we just work on them at the same time. But our script is not like yours, you know, it's different. Um, right. <laughs> but I would, I, and that would cause a problem. You would then, you could write it like that, sort of just collaborate like that, but then somebody is going to have to take it and put it into that script thing. So it's nice that you can copy and paste. That's a great solution. Thank you for bringing that up. Exciting. Congrats to you guys. What about you, Josh? Well, I would like to read that script. I don't know if Jason will let me, but I would like to check it out. So uh, just <laughs> FYI. What? Once it's like actually, right. are you one, going I'll to take that and submit it to that show? No. So the reason why we're writing that, that's probably <laughs> a good, a good thing. We um, nothing we're better submitting to, do with our time, to um, so we're just writing scripts. Yeah. You know, so yeah. We're like, oh, we're, we're big fans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're submitting to a bunch of different fellowships and, and writing. Um, I guess it's just, Part, I guess fellowship is just the only Grants. word that I can think of right now. Um, but there's different programs. Yeah, it, it, there's different programs. Like Nickelodeon has a program where you can apply and then they'll pay you to come and learn how to write their shows. And you get to meet people in this in the industry, that sort of thing. Warner Brothers has one. Um, that's the one. That's the main one we want to submit to. That's what we wrote what we do in the shadows for. We've been writing a Ted Lasso. We've been struggling a little bit more with the Ted Lasso. And what we do with the shadows is how we found this new method. So we're actually in the process of getting Ted Lasso over into that format so that we can be writing it together. You know, it's funny. Um, so yeah, funny that you bring up Ted Lasso because I was thinking in this morning, I was writing a blog post in my head of the comparison between uh, Ted Lasso lessons and World War II lessons. So there are a lot of parallel Ooh. lessons that I learned in Ted Lasso and that I have learned from World War II and the Battle of Normandy that I want to bring together and uh, and a blog. That's so funny. Yeah. All right, Josh, what about what's been going on with you? Uh, we recently released a movie proposal episode featuring a Hulu movie. It's called uh, Boss Level. It's a over-the-top kind of ultra-violent, fun action film. A little bit of Groundhog Day. Yeah. Well, actually, a lot bit of Groundhog Day. Is that kind of like Tomorrow's Edge? Is that what that's called? Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat. (laughs) Whichever one. Yeah, a guy is living a day over and over again, but it's just, it's the day that he gets killed by these assassins and he's, but he doesn't know why. And so it's about him figuring that out. Mm. It's surprisingly great. It's not for everybody. You, you need to be okay with the violence of it, but it's, it is kind of, it has this video game element to it, this theme almost. So it, it's more like watching video game violence than, you know, realistic or gory violence, but it's uh, it was fun, you know, and we talked about lots of other movies as well. You can check that out at the Movie Proposal Podcast. Yeah, awesome. And and one big thing we learned from that movie is that Josh may or may not be racist and Sky may or may not be a misogynist. So it was oh, a pretty good episode. I'm have to listen to this one. Because <laughs> nobody can blame me yeah, for you anything. Got off, uh, got off clean that episode, I just realized. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> oh, well, I just got to say, I really appreciate you guys so much following on this journey. I learn from you uh, every week and you bring great stuff to this podcast. So 
Thank you for being here. I want to thank our listeners, too, uh, for supporting us. We uh, we are one step closer to our launching our Patreon page. We do hope you'll consider supporting us. Times are really tight for the girl who wore freedom, so we could really use your support. Uh, we are going to launch some special items for the girl who wore freedom shop for the 77th anniversary of D-Day that's coming up. So you'll want to keep your eye out there. And uh, all of our festival news is on the girl who wore freedom dot com slash festival. Uh, you'll get you know all sorts of information there so uh, thank you so much for listening please leave us some some comments on wherever you listen to podcasts so that we can continue to build our reputation that would be incredibly helpful and spread the word about our film and our podcast to your friends so thank you very much for listening yes thank you everyone for listening to documentary first where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.